The following message was given by Joseph Stagora, a pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, and a guest preacher at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Thank you for having me and my family here. We're really glad to be with you all. And uh, if you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Actually, I see the Hubers are here. I'd rather hear Kyle preach. You want to, can you come up? (laughs) No, seriously, can you come up? (laughs) No, it's great, great to see you guys. Great to see you. Uh, We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and read to verse 26. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least. In the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, teach, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Oh, Lord God, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be here and you would bless this time in your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to talk to you about virgins' accommodation conflict. Virgins' accommodation conflict. This is the visual phenomenon that occurs when your brain receives mismatching cues between virgins, that means your two eyes moving in different directions, and accommodation, each eye accommodating for the other. Now, you don't think you understand what I just said, but you do. Here's what I want you to do. Hold your finger up and look at it, directly at it. 
Okay, now look past it and do that magic trick where you have two fingers. See who that is? There you go. That's virgin's accommodation conflict. It's the key behind those audio stereograms. Have you ever seen those images that look like dots and squiggles and all of this? But like if you don't look at the picture, but you look through the picture, all of a sudden you see an image that pops out in three dimensions. Virgin's accommodation conflict is the key to depth perception. You're not looking at the surface, you're looking beyond it. You're looking deeper. It's what allows us to see that the world is not simply two-dimensional, but has depth to it. Virgin's accommodation conflict brings the depth out of our two-dimensional view on things. And this is kind of similar to what Jesus is pointing out in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. He says that we are prone to only looking at the surface and missing the depth. We're prone to seeing two dimensions instead of three. We're prone to look at the letter of the law and miss the spirit. See, our problem that Jesus is addressing here is our shallow perception. We think too highly of ourselves and too lightly of the judgments that we make on others. In our two-dimensional pride and self-righteousness, we end up imprisoned in our anger and in danger of God's eternal judgment. But Jesus comes and teaches us to look deeper and to see the spirit beyond our two-dimensional vision in this text. And what we see here in this text is that Jesus humbles us with his righteousness, frees us from our prison of anger, and leads us to reconciliation with God and others. Jesus humbles us with his righteousness, he frees us from our prison of anger, and he leads us to reconciliation with God and with each other. Jesus calls us, he says, look deeper. He says, you don't think highly enough of God or of those that he has bestowed his image upon. He tells us that we are in need of a righteousness that's far greater than we think. He warns us that because of this, our souls are in danger. And he calls us to humble ourselves. He calls us to go quickly and be reconciled to people that we have mistreated. And he tells us that he is the one who makes all of this possible. And so we have three points this morning. We have the exceeding righteousness of Jesus, the godlessness of our anger, and the sweetness of reconciliation. So let's begin by looking at the exceeding righteousness of Jesus. And I'm actually going to move this folder, which is too thick for the lip. (laughs) It's all right. The exceeding righteousness of Jesus, the godlessness of our anger, and the sweetness of reconciliation. So, the exceeding righteousness of Jesus in verses 17 to 20. As you have been learning in this series, which has been wonderful, 
We're continuing here in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gathered a crowd of his disciples and he's teaching them. He began with the Beatitudes in verses 2 to 12, which is a challenging but beautiful picture of the blessing and the satisfaction and the joy and the eternal hope that God gives us when we live lives of faith to him. He taught us in verses 13 to 16 how our God-centered and faith-filled lives shine in a dark world and testify to the goodness and the glory of God. For the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to give us six examples of what the righteous life looks like. And each example exposes our erroneous understanding and reveals the true nature of the righteousness of God. Now, what does Jesus mean in verses 17 to 20 when he talks about the law and the prophets? Well, the law means the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which includes the history of God's interaction with sinful humanity and his plan to redeem us. And by the prophets, he means the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, including the history of Israel and its kings, the wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs, and all the writings of the prophets. In verse 17, he says that we should not think that he has come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. And you've heard this. Nick has taught this already. You've seen it earlier. But it means that all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus and point to Jesus. J.C. Ryle explains it in this way. He says... The Lord Jesus came to fulfill the predictions of the prophets who had long foretold the Savior would one day appear. He came to fulfill the ceremonial law by becoming the great sacrifice for sin to which all the Mosaic offerings had ever pointed. He came to fulfill the moral law by yielding to it a perfect obedience which we could never have yielded and by paying the penalty for our breach in it with his atoning blood which we could never have paid. In all these ways, he exalted the law of God and made its importance more evident even than it had been before. As our Savior and our sacrifice and our atonement, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets reveal the righteous perfection of God. It's the standard that's held out to evaluate us. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus says that those who want to be accepted by God must keep his righteous law perfectly. Not even the smallest apostrophe or period at the end of a sentence can be left out. It has to be kept perfectly. And Jesus warns that anyone who relaxes or teaches others to relax, even a part of the law, is guilty of diminishing the righteous perfection of the very nature and character of God. Diminishing God's righteousness is condemned in the kingdom of heaven. But upholding God's righteousness is commended. But before anyone can say that they are upholding God's righteous law, Jesus challenges our perspective even more. Because we tend to think of righteousness not from God's perspective, but from ours, right? Compared to any number of people, we think we're doing pretty well. We're pretty good people. Well, Jesus reorients our perspective. 
he essentially points to the scribes and the Pharisees. Those are the religious leaders. Those were the the pastors, the elders of the day, essentially. The ones who teach God's word and teach the law and go out of their way to demonstrate that they're keeping God's law in the strictest ways. And what does Jesus say? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And with those words, Jesus just obliterates our opinion of ourselves. See, we don't need the righteousness of the scribes. We don't need the righteousness of the Pharisees. We don't need even our own righteousness. We need the exceeding righteousness of Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We stand guilty and hopeless before the law and the prophets and we need the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. We need the exceeding righteousness of Jesus. Commentator Kent Hughes says that when Jesus said this, he was speaking as kindly as he ever spoke because he was explaining in the most dramatic terms the impossibility of salvation apart from his grace. How kind of Jesus to show us the true standard of righteousness. How kind of Jesus to extend his saving grace to us through his life of perfect obedience to God's law. His blood shed on the cross to pay for our sins. His resurrection from the dead in power. How kind of God to provide for us the exceeding righteousness of Jesus. And once we've seen the exceeding righteousness of Jesus, then we are called to face The godlessness of our own anger. The godlessness of our anger. Because in verses 21 and 22, Jesus uses specific phrasing. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And he's going to do that for the next six sections. His point is to reveal what we think we know about God's word and what we think we know about ourselves and then reveal the true state of our hearts. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Here, Jesus is referencing the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, but through it, he exposes the great godlessness of our angry hearts. Because we are like the scribes and the Pharisees, as John Calvin describes them. He says, this was indeed the fundamental error of the Jewish teachers. And I submit it's the fundamental error of our human hearts. That the divine law prohibited only the sinful act and not the sinful thought. They were disposed to rest in the letter of the law and never inquired into the spiritual meaning of it. Now, ultimately, murder is an attack on the image of God that is reflected in another person. We see this 
upheld in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Murder is a godless act because it seeks to destroy the very image of God in someone else. And Jesus exposes the godlessness of our anger and the murderous motivations within us when we lash out with hostile or dismissing and demeaning words toward others who bear the image of God. Matthew Henry calls it tongue murder. It's a helpful phrase, isn't it? Do we think about our anger as tongue murder? When we insult someone or call someone a fool, if you look at the, the note at the bottom of your, your Bible margin there, it tells you that the Greek word there is raka. It's a, it's a term of abuse, similar to calling someone an idiot or empty-headed, calling someone stupid, a jerk, or worse. Now, now let's ask, is, is Jesus, is he really, how accurate is he here? Because when I say those words, I think most of us are probably thinking like, that's eh, not that big a deal, right? You might even be saying, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty tame name calling, <laughs> considering, right? Pretty tame name calling. Most of the time, I don't even mean it, so it doesn't really matter. Well, our quickness to excuse these sorts of angry outbursts reveals the problem that Jesus is trying to show us. His words are like Hebrews 4.12 says, meant to discern the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, whether we admit it or not, Jesus knows and tells us our intentions. He says that when you speak these words in anger, they are significant because you do intend to demean and express to one of God's image bearers that they are of no worth or value. Our godless, angry words in the moment are meant to destroy or murder another person who is God's image bearer. And Jesus says that's deadly serious. So serious that it puts us in danger of facing the judgment of the fires of hell. Jesus says, your soul is endangered by the way you treat and speak to others. Now think about how quickly we, we pass over that and how seriously Jesus is speaking about it. Oh, how we need a Savior. It's worth asking, why are we so angry? And how can we change? The Bible actually tells us that anger itself is not wrong. It's actually part of the way that we as human beings reflect the character and nature of God. David Pallison makes the bold statement to remind us that God is the angriest person in the Bible. But God's anger is not like some irate tyrant who's out of control and just indiscriminately insulting God's anger is a holy expression of his love for his own glory and for the good of his people. And it's directed toward the suppression 
of sin and evil. God's anger acts for the preservation of what is right and good and beautiful and holy. And the Bible calls that righteous anger. Jesus demonstrated that when he turned the tables in the temple or refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites or a brood of vipers. Jesus' anger is directed toward the suppression of sin and evil. It's never degrading. We even see on the cross, 1 Peter 2 tells us that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we experience anger at the injustice of something like racism or the murder of children through abortion, that's an expression of righteous anger. But it's important that we don't express that anger in a sinful way. Our anger is godless when the goal is not God's glory and the good of others, but obtaining our own desires. And that's what so often really drives our anger. We become angry when we don't get what we want. Right? It's not all that complicated. We become angry when we don't get what we want. We want our desires to be fulfilled. We want to do something to bring that about. We want to be in control. We want to be in control of our circumstances. We want to be in control of the people around us because we think that they should do what we do. They should think how we think. They should act how we act. They should treat us the way we think we deserve to be treated. We want to be in control in control of everything around us for our comfort and our satisfaction. We want to be in control. So anger is ultimately about wanting to be God. And if we don't get what we want, then there's hell to pay. One of the tragic things that Jesus reveals here about our anger is that it's often expressed to those that we are supposed to love most. He tells us we need to be reconciled with our brother. He uses that term of affection. And very often, our families are the ones who take the brunt of our anger and our angry words, aren't they? We all all tend to have this certain amount of self-control or reserve with people outside of our family in contexts where... We're concerned about our reputation. But in the privacy of our own homes, it's our spouse or our kids or our parents or our siblings who are the ones who receive the brunt of our harsh words and anger. And and that's been my experience. In almost no context, in almost no context would the people who know me say that I'm an angry person or easily angered. But I'm humbled to say that home and parenting reveals just how much pride and anger resides in my heart. It actually just happened to me last night. We're we're, we're after a youth meeting at the church. Wendy and I make a plan for getting home. She's going to drive one car with the kids. I would pack up my things in my office and drive the other car home. I'm upstairs in my office. Ten minutes later, my son comes walking upstairs to my office. He says, Mom went home, and he and his sister are downstairs, and he wanted to ask me about something about getting home. 
My plans were not followed, and I reacted. I didn't blow up and yell, but I, I started to question him harshly. I started accusing him of not following my plan. I was irritable, and I insinuated through my tone and comments that he was foolish for not doing things the way I had said they should be done. And it was, it was obvious that he felt my displeasure, my irritation, and it all happened so fast, even as I had been preparing all week to preach about angry responses. So by God's grace, he actually responded humbly to my reaction, and it took me a minute to calm down and realize what I was doing. And I was able to settle the situation, talk to him again this morning, ask for his forgiveness in that. But that's just one of the many examples of how quickly I give in to anger. I couldn't get my tie tied this morning, and I'm, my wife is standing there. I'm like, she's about to become the you know, target of my agitation. It's just anger comes so quickly, and we can let ourselves give ourselves into insulting others, putting others down. This can extend to our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church as well. Something doesn't go our way. We lash out at our loved ones and we murder them with our demeaning words. Now, our anger can have a lot of different expressions. Our anger can be explosive, angry outbursts, strong emotions, hurtful words. It can be indirect, those passive-aggressive comments, sarcastic put-downs, biting uh, criticisms. It can be internalized, seething agitation, resentful internal conversations, and bitter judgments. Our anger can have subtle expressions like impatience or irritability or be confrontational like hostility or revenge. How How does your anger manifest itself? Are you aware? It's wise to be aware of our tendencies, and to strategize on how we can work and grow in responding righteously. So by way of application, I want to briefly just recommend four ways that we can move toward change in our angry responses. The first is to meditate on the gospel. The first is to meditate on the gospel. David Pallison says so simply, in love, the anger your sin deserves fell on Jesus. In love, the anger that your sin deserves fell on Jesus. Reflecting on Christ's substitution of himself in our place should be enough to remind us of how merciful and patient God has been with us. That should compel us to extend mercy and patience toward others when we remember how great our sin is against God's holiness And how the forgiveness that we received was purchased with with blood and even the precious blood of God himself. It should make us quick to forgive others. The more we meditate and preach the gospel to ourselves each day, the less angry our responses will be. Second, meditate on God's sovereignty and goodness. Meditate on God's sovereignty and goodness. Jerry Bridges says, to dissolve our sinful emotions, we must believe that God is absolutely sovereign in all the affairs of our lives, both good and bad, and that all the words 
and actions of other people that tempt us to anger are somehow included in his wise and good purposes to make us more like Jesus. We must realize that any given situation that tempts us to anger can drive us either to sinful anger or to Christ and his sanctifying power. Any given situation that tempts us to anger can either drive us to sinful anger or to Christ and his sanctifying power. Now, Jerry Bridges is not overlooking things like abuse, extreme physical abuse or emotional abuse. That's not what we're talking about here. In this passage, we're talking about our general, everyday, angry responses. The more we meditate on God's sovereignty and goodness, the more patient we will be when unforeseen things occur or people are insensitive or inconsiderate to us. Third, train yourselves to use James chapter 4. James, train yourself to use James 4. In James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, James asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? The answer, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Sound familiar? The fighting, our quarreling, it's rooted in the same murderous heart intentions as our abusive language is when we use it toward others. But James goes on to say that if we are to humble ourselves, God gives more grace. Don't you want more grace? God gives more grace. So train yourself in every situation to ask yourself this simple question. What do I want that I'm not getting? What do I want that I'm not getting? That question has changed my life because it reveals the motives behind my reactions. It helps me see why I'm sinning the way that I am. When we humble ourselves and we answer that question, we see our motivations more clearly and we're able to be more specific in our confessions, more aware of what drives us to our angry responses and we're able to receive more grace, more grace from our Heavenly Father. And fourth, study, pray, and pursue fellowship. Study, pray, and pursue fellowship. Study, find scriptures like Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, which calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. Meditate on scripture that calls you to gentle and loving responses, to grow in patience. There's three books I recommend for your study. One is Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. It is a devastating book because it looks at all the things that we kind of deal with in our lives and just say, they're fine, let them go. We sweep them under the rug. It pulls them out and forces us to see it compared to the righteousness of God. David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, is a wonderful treatment of anger and goes in-depth into um, processing our anger scripturally and dealing with it. 
And Ed Welch has a small devotional called A Small Book About a Big Problem, Meditations on Anger, Patience, and Peace. Great four family devotions at the table. Pray, ask God to empower you with his spirit to be gracious with others and to avoid anger. And then fellowship. Find other believers that you can open up your life to. 1 John 1.7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. Walk in the light. You are all here at the beginning of a church. You are a small church. You all know each other well. But for some of you, there's no one who really knows how you've struggled in your marriage or with your family in the area of anger. You've told them, yeah, yeah, we had a fight, but you haven't told them about the specifics. You haven't humbled yourself and listed the actual swear words and names that you've called each other, or that you picked something up and threw it. I want to encourage you, instead of talking in euphemism, oh, it got ugly or it was bad, if we want to change, we need people to really know more specifically what our anger looks like, how it gets expressed, how it makes your family members feel. Let's be humble and honest with one another. God has grace for us through the body of believers when we humble ourselves. Our godless anger can be counteracted with righteous responses, ones that are motivated by the spirit and the law of love, love for God and love for our neighbor. Love for God means we respect and honor him and respect and honor those who have been created as his image bearers. And that leads us to our last point, which is the sweetness of of reconciliation. The sweetness of reconciliation in verses 23 to 26. It's here that the Bible calls us to pursue the sweetness of reconciliation by acknowledging our sin and dealing with it quickly and directly. The picture is one of going to the temple to worship God and then remembering that we had responded in anger to someone and it was unresolved. And the first step is self-reflection, self-examination. As, as Psalm 139, 23, and 24 says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's what we want, to ask God and ask the Spirit of God. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We should be asking God to reveal where we have sinned. Verses 24 and 25 say that we should deal quickly and directly when we feel convicted. Essentially, Jesus is saying it, is that if you have dishonored God by dishonoring his image in someone else, that has implications for your worship. It has implications for your relationship with God. In 1 John 4.20, it begs the question, how can you say you love God, whom you've never seen, but hate your brother? who you see every day. Verse 25 speaks about being quick in resolving offenses so that your relationships can be restored both with God and with the other person. What should we do if, we, if we're at that place where we feel like we're not ready to repent? Anger is one of those things where you, you feel it so deeply. You know you're supposed to go and apologize, but 
You can't. You can't let it go yet. So what do we do when we're not ready? Obviously, we can't seek reconciliation until we feel real conviction from the Holy Spirit. We want our reconciliation to be reflective and meaningful, but that doesn't mean that we should that we need a certain amount of time to be truly repentant. Jesus is giving us a principle here. Do not let reconciliation wait. Don't let it be long and drawn out. Don't let your resistance be part of growing in bitterness or part of a continued angry punishment of the other person. Jesus says, be quick. Keep your accounts short. Humble yourself quickly and admit your wrongs. You want to get past that hurdle of feeling angry? Just start reminding yourself how wrong you were. Where relationship and respect was broken by our sin, we need to admit that we were wrong. We need to communicate our sorrow over causing harm or demeaning someone else with our language. Not just offending them, but devaluing them as a reflection of the image of God. We need to ask for their forgiveness. What do you do if the person you've sinned against is not ready to reconcile? Now, it's not your responsibility to make them forgive you. And you're not beholden to them if they refuse. You just humble yourself before God and trust Him. Keep your heart ready to reconcile. Wait on the Lord and do your best to keep communication lines open so the other person can respond to Jesus' call to them. Reconciliation is more necessary than we think, and it's more costly than we think, but it's also more valuable than we think. Reconciliation is sweet. Jesus describes it as the lifting of the weight of debt, of, of not being under the judgment of the court, being set free from prison. Jesus says, once you're reconciled with another, then you can return to worship. Then your heart is freed to give God the glory He deserves, to express the gratitude that He is worthy of. We can worship God for His righteousness. Worship Jesus because He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We can worship with gratitude because we know that in our pride and self-righteousness, we deserve to be imprisoned in our anger and face an eternity of God's judgment. But thanks be to God. Jesus humbles us with his righteousness, frees us from the prison of our anger, and leads us to reconciliation with God and with each other. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Joseph Stagor given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.